1: Hey, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hi, darling. Hello, hello. Hi. And welcome. (laughs) You know, this is what happens.
2: I don't drink whiskey until it starts to get cold, really. Like, it's not a summer beverage for me. It's too heavy. Yes, it makes you feel too warm inside. So I always wait until it kind of cools off, which in... L A. It's still like seventy something in the in the daytime, so it's yeah. not even really cool cooled off. But there is something about a whiskey drink right now. I'm having kind of like a a tea, a hot tea with lemon and honey and whiskey in it, and um, a hot toddy. But usually you I are don't put the, tea in
1: my hot toddy. <laughs> yeah, you are the hot toddy queen, though. Mm-hmm.
2: It is my it's my cold weather beverage, which right?
1: blows my mind because my friend Ricky just discovered hot toddies. I guess they. He didn't have that in South Africa, apparently. Um, But he was like, this is the greatest thing ever. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, if I drink one of those, I'm out. Because, like, my mom used to give me hot toddies when I was sick, even as, like, a kid. Oh, wow. I mean, not, like, young. Like, I remember having one probably for the first time when I was, like, maybe in eighth grade, early high school. But it was like she would make a small one that would be strong to knock me the fuck out. Hot toddies are one of those beverages that I've tricked, one of those like alcoholic
2: beverages that I've tricked myself into believing is medicine. You know, yeah.
1: because I'm like, oh, this makes me feel better. <laughs> to to <laughs> my, I don't know if it's my mom's German, Czech, what it is, but to her, I think it probably is, it is That's medicine. That's why I started like, drinking a, them, yeah. Yeah, if mm-hmm. you've got a sore throat or anything, but there is something I feel like still comforting about it. And I love like spiced cider. And there is something about a hot toddy that mm-hmm. like, although it's more citrusy, kind of reminds me of that as well. So it is comforting, but it makes, yes. it makes me fall asleep immediately. But there
2: is something about drinking whiskey that, for me, puts me in like a, I should be sitting in a leather armchair kind of mode. You know what I mean? Like, I feel very studious. Like, I should be, I've Are you feeling slippers
1: on. and you smooth like a, as Tennessee whiskey? Yeah, Sweet as oh. strawberry wine? Wow. Uh, Whose yeah. song is that? Why can't I? Who, Chris Stapleton? Chris Stapleton. I remember who's saying that. Just kidding. All right. Well, should we get this thing started, Keegan? Yes, let's get it started. Okay. So for the person that I am talking about this week, I actually had, I think, two other people in mind that I took almost full notes on. Uh, the first person that I wrote about, I am going to tell you about, which is Edith Wilson, who was the first lady to um, Woodrow Wilson, but... After I got done with it, I thought she was going to, like, redeem herself from, like, her old, like, plantation father years, and Uh she didn't, and I was like, I can't talk about her, even though, like, her story is super cool. I'm like... She's and then you reserve I, that for problematic first ladies. Exactly, right? Because she did a lot of she, her husband had a stroke and she essentially was the president without anybody knowing for like a really long time. And it's super cool. Um very fascinating. And that's why I, like I literally was at the end of her life, and I was like, Well, so you never redeemed yourself. Fuck you, lady. Like, <laughs> never mind. And then the second people that I read about, I can't remember the names now, they were the something ladies, but it was a story about these two. Um, ladies in, I believe, the 1700s, 1800s that were kind of in, like, a Boston marriage. Now, do you know what a Boston marriage is? No, ma'am. Okay, so I actually did a, a scene from the play Boston Mar- Marriage by David Mamet, and it is a real thing that was around during that time where two women, typically wealthy, would live together, um, have their wealth be together, share a home, and typically... You know, they were kind of thought to just be like gal friends living together, but a lot of times Mm -hmm. it turned out that there was some other relationships going on. So that was what was happening with these two women. And as I was reading about them, they brought up a woman named Anne Lister, who met these two women and it inspired her to want to bring up the idea of an unconventional marriage to the woman that she loved. And so as soon as I read that, I was like, well, I want to know who this person is. And I... Was I was shocked.
2: <laughs> okay, um, I know you were sending me text messages, and you were like, "I am floored." I'm so floored. I can't
1: wait. I'm I'm so excited that I found this person. I'm I don't think she's as forgotten to everybody as I thought she was because I guess there was an HBO show about her later years called Gentleman Jack. Oh my God! Yes, I watched the first two episodes of that. Okay, so that's Anne Lister. Okay. Okay. so let's now, that you know, a little bit about who she is, let's get into it, because I had never heard of her and I didn't even hear the show until like the last paragraph of the article that I was reading. And I was like, well, I'm a dumbass. Like, I didn't even know this was a thing. I mean, I watched the first two
2: episodes of the show and still that didn't click for me until you said that. So
1: well, and I heard that the that the show takes place during her like later life. Which is going to be fascinating, but I was very interested in her early life as well. So, throughout her life, Anne kept detailed accounts of her daily life in diaries. The diaries contained 7,720 pages and more than 5 million words. About a sixth of those words were written in code.
2: Wow. I mean, the time you have when you don't have TV or social media weighing you down, you
1: can just write and write. Write and write, and you can just write. You can make up an entire language in code that you understand and write a sixth of your, like, millions of words Jesus. and pages in code. So the code was a mix of Greek of the Greek alphabet, algebra, zodiac, and punctuation. The diaries were first discovered in the 1880s by her descendant by the name of John Lister in his ancestral home called Shibden, which is where Anne lived and remodeled and um, spent the last years of her life. Uh, John became obsessed with trying to discover the meaning behind the code. So in the 1890s, John asked his buddy Arthur Burrell, who was a teacher, to help him crack the code. So Arthur took home some of Anne's diaries and solved the damn thing. He first figured out the letters H and E after finding a small piece of paper hidden behind the deeds for the Shibden home saying, God is my blank. And it was a four letter word. And he figured that the word was hope. So I didn't look into this more, but I would assume that that's maybe like a common phrase. Do you know how bad I would be at trying to
2: decipher code? Like I am the worst at like escape rooms.
1: Any of that, like Da Vinci code shit, I am terrible at it. There is no way. There's like a way of doing it. Cause I remember when I was like interested in the zodiac, like these people that would go through those ciphers and figure it out. Like there's people that know how to like crack code and that's like (sighs) what they do. I don't know. So this guy must have had some experience in it, but he figured that this word was hope and that the, you know, the first letter was H and the last letter was E. So from that, he kind of started. Uh, Figuring out more and more letters. And within hours, he discovered something that he never really thought that he would. He discovered that John Lister's ancestor was a raging lesbian. (laughs) Anne was not a timid, bemure gay woman. This... This woman would do well in West Hollywood in 2020. Like, she was very gay. Uh, So Arthur was shocked and horrified by what he found. He told John, and John was also humiliated. Uh, So Burrell advised John to burn the diaries. He was like, this is going to ruin your life. It's going to ruin your family. You need to burn these diaries. What (laughs) year is this? This is the 1880s. Okay. So John at first feels the same way he's like i can't have this survive but luckily i think he had that feeling you know this is my family's history and things like that he decided not to destroy the diaries instead he concealed them on shelves that were concealed by paneling in the shibden manor where they remained until 1933 So, by 1933, the Shinton House was now under public ownership, and by then, when they went through the home, the diaries were finally discovered again, and a research team was made so they could dissect the code. At this point, luckily, Arthur Burrell is still alive, the guy who originally cracked the code. He was in his 80s. And they reached out to him and they were like, hey, we really need that code. And he's like, yeah, fine. I'm going to send you a copy. But he wrote them like a letter. An hour after I send this to you, I'm burning my copy. Like he didn't want anything to do with this woman or her story.
2: It's so strange to me because it's like, okay, well, why burn your copy at that point? Because you've already... Pass the story along I guess maybe
1: Maybe there would be like Less proof that he had it I don't know I think it was just a way Obviously incredibly homophobic You know Man Hmm. trying to Distance himself From discovering Something so cool Uh, So the researchers got the code and they started going through the diary as well. And when they discovered the manner of the material, they censored the hell out of it. They were told to remove anything that they saw as unsuitable material for the public. Now, like I said, Anne was not writing about how sweet and lovely these women were. Anne was raunchy as fuck. Block. like she you get
2: that sense in Gentleman Jack like you it, the first two epi- there's like sex in the first two episodes
1: yeah she, and it's HBO so you know yeah she is described as being almost predatory <laughs> which makes sense in a way because I think she was just she had and I'm gonna talk about this as we go into who she was as a person but she very much believed that anything that men were entitled to she was entitled to and had this very masculine energy and she almost seems like like a horny teenage boy to me like she's just very like vulgar and descriptive and horny all the time she was a very horny woman so the diaries weren't like Sweet love letters. It was it was pretty graphic. I'm gonna read you a passage later of one that they said was particularly modest and I was blushing. Ooh. (laughs) I'm I'm excited. I'm gonna look these up later for sure. Well, what's crazy is like so you have to you have to find them though because like if you look at the pictures of the diaries, it's all in code. So you have to like kinda dig on the internet to find these different things. I had to look at a few different articles to find like multiple. In the year of our Lord twenty
2: (laughs) twenty. How has nobody gotten these entries, deciphered
1: them, and put them all over the internet? Like, they're on some Reddit thread? Come on. So there is a book, and that's what I was going to get into. So in in 1982, there was a 52-year-old teacher by the name of Helena Whitbread, who was interested in writing a novel about Anne after she had read the diaries in the library. So she found all this microfilm and started putting it through that machine or whatever, and she starts noticing that there's, like, Pages upon pages that are completely in code. And she's like, what is this? Like, I got to know what she's trying to say. Nothing
2: will make somebody want to know something more than putting it
1: in something that they can't read. I know, right? So she goes to a librarian. She gets the copy of the code key that was from Burrell. And she discovered the true nature of these diaries. Uh, she began to read about Anne and one of her loves by the name of Mariana uh, after a passage in December 12th 1817 which read I took off my police and drawers got into bed and had a good kiss She showing all due inclination in less than seven minutes the door was unbolted and we were all right again (laughs) 7 minutes. Wow. 7 Speedy. minutes. So Helena realizes as she's reading. So if you if you heard that she refers to a kiss, Helena discovers that when Anne writes the word kiss, she actually means sex and kiss is actually a cursive q with like a curly q at the end of it. So when she talks about kissing, it's actually having sex. I would assume maybe oral sex it kind of seems like it would be. It's interesting
2: that she would be write she goes through the trouble of writing everything in code and then won't openly talk about sex or use the word sex
1: yeah and what but what's funny is that she this is just like the funniest thing to me something she would do is whenever she had an orgasm she would write an x in the margins which i love okay (laughs) uh the word grubbing is groping and going to italy means having sex So she kind of deciphered all of this stuff and in 19, I I wrote 88, but I think it was 98, she wrote the book I Know in My Heart, which was uh, a copy of a lot of Anne's diaries and her story and things like that. So now that you know the history of the diaries, I want to get into Anne's life. So, Anne Lister was born on April 3rd, 1791, in Halifax, West Yorkshire, England. She was the second child of Jeremy Lister and Rebecca Battle, but their first child, who was a son, died a day after his birth. Fun fact her father, Jeremy, was a soldier in the Revolutionary War, which is pretty cool, but he was in England, so he wasn't on. He's a red coat. He was a red coat. So when Anne was two, her brother Samuel was born. In all, the Listers had four sons and two daughters, but Anne and her younger sister Marion were the only ones to live past 20 years old. Gosh, olden times. I know, right? You die by the time you're like five. Yeah. Anne was taught at home by private tutors and her grandmother for a while, But she was a handful. So by the time she was 13 in 1804 she was sent to a boarding school. But she was also a little bit too much trouble for everybody at the boarding school as well so the teachers sent her to live in the attic all by herself. Jesus. Yes. God damn it. Like
2: old times. The way we were treated
1: children. I know. Exactly. It's amazing. She was described as being very tomboyish. Very like rough and tumble energetic. So I'm sure people just really didn't know how to handle her at that time so the easiest thing to do of course is just to banish her to a room by herself so it was during this time at her boarding school where she really turned to her diary as a way of um, having a companion and she wrote every minute detail of her day like when she woke up what she ate who she saw like she obsessively wrote in this diary every single detail so shortly after she started going to this school She met a girl named Eliza Rain. Eliza and her sister were both wealthy daughters of an East Indian surgeon. And Eliza was also a bit of a troublemaker and was sent to live in the attic with Anne. The two became. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 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 So the two become very, very close and soon they became lovers and they had a full on, like, that was her girlfriend. Like they were in a real relationship for a while and the teachers never suspected. A thing, which is crazy. And during this time, she started using the word Felix, meaning happy in Latin, in her diary, which was to mean that she had a sexual encounter with Eliza. During this time and for most of her life, Anne refers to her sexuality in her diary as her oddity, but she doesn't judge it. In fact, she is fascinated and excited by it. Like I said earlier, Anne really wanted to be equal to men in all ways, whether it be in her education or in love. She felt that she was entitled to do whatever it was that she wanted to do and love whoever she wanted to love. So this wasn't something for her that she was struggling with or battling with. She was like, this is my oddity. This is what makes me cool and unique. And I'm going to have fun with it. So I think that's kind of an amazing outlook that she Mm -hmm. had. Uh, So as Anne is kind of exploring her sexuality more and more and discovering who she is, she decides that she also wants more sexual partners. So she dumped Eliza. Aw, poor Eliza. It gets worse. Uh, Eliza is sent into a deep depression from which she would never recover. Jesus. Like, how good was the sex? Like, really? I know, (laughs) <laughs> she says you never recover. Yeah, she wrote to Anne. You can little know what pain you have given me. And eventually, she was sent to an asylum that she stayed in until she died. Oh no, she was broken. So Anne, <laughs> you're a heartbreaker. Also,
2: quick, quick disclaimer. Okay, yeah. that's a joke. I don't think that it's Anne's fault. Oh, I
1: know. <laughs> right? Like, okay,
2: that well, is Well, okay, joke.
1: Anne was being a dick, but also they're like teenagers. It's like a high school relationship. And she's like, hey, I want to have sex with other people. And Eliza was probably, you know, much more invested emotionally than she was. And I, I kind of think that also, you know, it sounds like she really battled depression, but... I'm sure that the asylum had a lot to do with her sexuality, if that ever came out. I'm sure that it was sure. probably like mm-hmm. that secret was discovered and she was sent away for a long time.
2: Well, and if you feel that way, you know, about somebody and you are also so deeply closeted in this society that will not accept your sexuality, you may feel like that is your one and only chance, chance. to be with somebody. That's you know? a really so, good point. I mean, yeah. Anne
1: somehow found lots of ladies, but I would assume and Anne don't for, give a fuck, that's why. She doesn't. She Anne doesn't care. care if you're gay, straight. Otherwise, she is going to try to have sex with you. Um, <laughs> so, shortly after the breakup, Anne met a woman named... Mar- I'm going to call her Mariana. I don't know if it's Mariana or Mariana. Mariana Belcombe. Uh, Mariana was this sweet 21-year-old girl. She was also the daughter of a wealthy doctor. At this point, I am going to say that Anne... Um, Definitely had this, like, idea of a Boston marriage in her head of, like, marrying, marrying, in quotes, wealthy so that, you know, they get each other's estates and live well and things like that. So, yes, she did. I, I believe that she really did love the women that she was with for the most part. But she also, like wanted to be with somebody that could financially support her very well <laughs> and she just yeah, wanted to maintain her class yeah well she did that makes sense she didn't really have a high class that's the thing is she was kind of like i guess middle class like she she could kind of like rub elbows with high society but she wasn't like high that's high society because in the show
2: they kind of make her seem like she is well
1: she's with not, another woman right in the show
2: She's trying, at least in the first two episodes, she is trying to get with someone. Well, also so. when she's
1: older, she does get her own business. So there are some, there's some changes in finances <clears> with okay, her as she okay. gets older. She does become more self-sufficient. We'll get into that. But when she's young, especially like her, one of her big things is like, Marrying for money. Like, she wants a hot girl with lots of money, which, you know, to each their own. You got to do what you got to do. So she was, like, all in on Mariana. And they would travel 400 miles back and forth by horse and cart from Yorkshire to Halifax so they could see each other. And they did this for years, keeping it a secret. And then when they couldn't see each other, they would write super steamy letters back and forth to each other. And Anne was... Head over heels, head over heels in love with Mariana. Like, I found the one, this is my person, everything. So, Anne was really willing to do all of this traveling because she believed that Mariana would be the person that she could have as her wife one day. She was willing to put that work in and that time. And eventually, Mariana reached out to Anne letting her know that she had agreed to marry a wealthy widower which completely broke Anne's heart and then something really strange happens so not only does Anne go to Mariana's wedding apparently a thing that was big back then was bringing your gal pals along on your honeymoon what yeah <laughs> yeah so she Mariana had her sister And Anne come with her on her honeymoon, which sounds like the most awkward time ever for everybody involved. Like, why would Mariana want Anne there and why would Anne actually go? The only thing I could think is that, like, in this time period, we were
2: supposed to believe that women were these, like, maybe scared of sex like these virginal kind yeah. of like flowers and maybe they needed this like emotional support right. because they didn't
1: know what they were getting themselves into in married life. Like, yeah. I don't know. You know what else I read in, so the article that I got most of my information from was a BBC article that I'll put in the show notes because it was a really well written article. Um, but something I said in there was really fascinating to me that apparently some parents back in that time would actually encourage uh Female to female relationships because it would dissuade women from getting pregnant. Mm -hmm.
2: Oh yes, I did a um, on my worst date. I did a crazy in love like quite a long time ago about kind of like a a similar time in the similar time period with a lesbian relationship, and I think they called it chumming. Like it was very common. Like it wasn't unlikely for or unusual for women to walk around holding their best friend's hands or even the kiss on the lips or, like, do things like that. So it was kind of almost easy to hide these same-sex relationships. It was. Because it wasn't unusual for unmarried girls to behave in a very, like, tactile, affectionate way. Totally.
1: So while she's on the honeymoon with Mariana and... Anne is completely miserable. She writes in her diary, She believed herself, or seemed to believe herself, over head and ears in love, yet she sold her person to another. So she very much has this, like, I would say kind of feminist idea of marriage, like quote unquote feminist idea of marriage, where it's kind of like buying and selling property and things like that. And I think especially because she married a man, she's feeling particularly spiteful and angry. It's kind of interesting that she
2: would feel that way because it's like, weren't you kind of doing the same thing? Like you were. Yes, you may have been in love with this person, Marianne, but like also you were using her for what you could get out of her, basically like her property. And right. Like-
1: well, I, I mean, yes, I think that's true. But from what I read, Anne really loved her. Like, re- because mm-hmm. she even okay. after, so they, they're broken up. Mariana's married. Anne is still completely heartbroken, but she's still very horny. So <laughs> she continued to make her way through the eligible women of Yorkshire, of Yorkshire, including... Mariana's sister. Mm, Sorry about you. Oh my God, right? So her sister's name was also Anne, which I think is funny. So while her actions were showing that she was mending her broken heart and moving on and finding these other women, her diaries were still flooded with the mention of Mariana's name. So that's why it's very clear that... The feelings never went away, even after she got married. So after a year apart, the two women reconnected again while visiting their families in Yorkshire. And somehow, the women ended up in bed together, which apparently... Somehow. ...was from Mariana's urgings. Anne said in her diary, She herself suggested a kiss. I thought it dangerous and would have declined, but she persisted. The two then picked up with an affair, again traveling hundreds of miles back and forth to each other for quite a while. And this actually went on for years. And on one visit, Mariana asked Anne to act as though they were married and to be faithful to her, which made Anne so excited, she immediately obliged and she wrote in her diary, "Sat up love-making. She asked me to swear to be faithful, to consider myself married. I shall now think and act as if she were my wife." In August of 1823, the women planned for Mariana to come to visit Anne. And Anne was just positively giddy with excitement. Like, you know when you have your friend coming and you just can't sit still? Mm-hmm. So she's like, I can't wait anymore. So she decides to meet Mariana on her route. So she gets dressed and she's walking, they say, in the pouring rain for, like, hours when she finally sees her buggy. So she, like, runs to the horse and carriage and jumps into it next to a sleeping Mariana who wakes up absolutely terrified because she's not alone with her. Yeah, not the husband, thank God, because that's where I thought it was going to go. But her sister was with her as well as, I don't know what sister, because I'm like, oh, it's the other one. She already knows. (laughs) Yeah, she knows. Yeah, like, what are you so afraid of? But it must have been somebody else. And then there was another passenger and their maid that were traveling on this horse and carriage as well. And so Mariana just freaks out at Anne and tells her that it's embarrassing to be around her because she looks so masculine and like, I can't believe you did this. Why would you show up? And Anne, you know, according to what I read, is just like crying and heartbroken and Mariana just does nothing to comfort her. It's very happiest season. Oh, dear. You know? Oh, no. In her diary during this time, Anne wrote, Oh, women, women, I am always taken up with some girl or another. When shall I amend? So to fix her broken heart, Anne fled to Paris and it really began to feel like home for her. Here she could live a little bit more openly with her lifestyle in Paris than she could when she was in England. Now here is when we are going to get to what they describe as a modest entry from Anne. I'm going to let you be the the judge of that. Okay. So this is from during her time in France with a woman named Maria, who she dated for a brief time, but then I guess Maria got too moody and annoyed her, so she broke up with her. But during this time... I kissed and pressed Mrs. Barlow on my knee till I had a complete fit of passion. My knees and thighs shook. My breathing and everything told her what was the matter, then made several gentle efforts to put my hand up her petticoat, which, however, she prevented, but she so crossed her legs and leaned against me that I put my hand over and grubbed her on the outside of her petticoats till she was evidently a little excited." okay that's some dirty shit right there like even well and you
2: know exactly what's going on like that's some old school erotica but you do know exactly what's happening
1: yeah I have her on my knee I'm like okay girl like I see what you're doing They say that in her diaries, they discover that she had about 11 lovers in about a dozen countries over about 15 years. So that's pretty impressive, Anne. That is impressive. She's crossing borders. So Anne loved to travel and she was very adventurous. There was a bunch that I read about and wish that I had time to go into, but she loved climbing mountains. Uh, She loved wowing people, being able to climb these really high peaks in her skirts And yeah, that was kind of her like favorite pastime. So she loved traveling around Europe and hiking. So when she finally returned home, she was introduced to a group of more high society women where she met another woman by the name of Veer Hobart, who was the sister of the 5th Earl of Buckinghamshire. Very fancy. Unfortunately, this relationship failed as well. And Anne's money and social standing were starting to fail. At this time, she wrote in her diary, here I am at 41 with a heart to seek. What will be the end of it? Oh, I know, poor, poor Anne. I know. So she's 41 and it kind of seems like at this point, she's kind of like the guy that loves to like be in the hookup culture until suddenly he's like, fuck, I got to get married and like settle down. Right. It kind of seems like she's in that like, oh my God, I actually really want like a companion to be with. I'm sick of, you know, traveling and... Hooking up and all that kind of stuff. So she went to her ancestral home that was now hers of Shibden Manor, where she put her energy into remodeling it. And she also started like providing coal and selling coal, I think. Like, I guess that there was coal on her. I don't yes. know anything about coal. They do that on the show. Yeah. Okay. So that's yes. that's how she starts getting her own money is by realizing that the location she's in is good for coal or something. I don't know anything about coal. I'm going to stop talking about it. Um, so among the pages of Remodeling Notes and Landscaping Ideas, a new-ish name began to appear. An- hmm. Another Anne... But with no E, this is Anne Walker. So I am going to refer to this Anne as Walker or else it's going to get okay. very confusing. Right. So there's Anne Lister with an E and then there's Anne Walker with no E. We're just going to call her Walker. So Anne actually met Walker 15 years earlier when Walker was just a teenager and they weren't friends like they had met. But they didn't really like get along or talk or anything because she was a teenager and Anne was an adult. So now when she came back, she remet Anne Walker, and they grew a very close friendship, and very soon we start seeing X's popping up all over the margins oh of, her d- of her diary. <laughs> Good for her. <laughs> uh, when they were intimate for the first time, Walker responded positively to Anne's advances. Anne wrote, I really did feel rather in love with her in the hut. Perhaps, after all, she will make me really happier than any of my former Flames. After two months together, Anne asked Walker to move in with her, which made Walker very nervous, and she asked Anne if she could have about six months to consider it, and Anne was like, yeah, of course, honey, take all the time you need. Six months? Six months, so. That is a long time to be considering something. Yeah, she probably spent about two minutes considering it, and then I don't know what she did for the other five point eight months so after six months they get back together and Anne walker still hasn't made up her mind she just can't say whether or not she's okay with moving in with i, Anne. I think you not making up your mind is making up your mind exactly. like
2: you're saying you don't want to move
1: in totally Clearly. so Anne again completely distraught she goes back to paris and she stayed there for several months and she did some more traveling and after being gone for a while when she returned to shibden Anne walker was there waiting for her Oh, OK, well, that's nice. I know. It's kind of like, well, what the fuck? But I think it was one of those things where it's like once she was gone, I'm sure it's like, no, I you don't really... know what you got till you almost lose it. Yeah. situation. it's like, you know, I really I really want her. So both women immediately altered their wills to make each other the life tenant to their estates. And Anne was so happy that she decided to tell her father, sister and elderly aunt. I feel like that might be a mistake. It was not. They were all... Uh, What? They must have known, I guess. They were far from shocked, and they supported the couple entirely.
2: Isn't that crazy? I guess that makes sense. Yeah, they knew.
1: Well, yeah, she... I didn't say this earlier, but she was known to dress in, like, top hats, all black. She'd wear, like, a long black skirt, but then, like, more of, like, a manly-type coat over it. So she did have, like, a more masculine appearance, I'm sure she wasn't always the best at hiding things either. She seems pretty out there with her methods of getting ladies. So I'm sure her family kind of had well, an opinion. I mean,
2: look, if you're having sex with everybody in town, I really have a hard time believing you're going to be able to hide that for very long. That is a
1: very great point. So one night after a, what Anne called, long capital grubbing, very English, Okay, <laughs> she wrote... Miss Walker was to give me a ring, and I her one in token of our union. I believe I shall succeed with her. If I do, I will try to make her happy. They had an unofficial wedding ceremony at the Holy Trinity Church on Easter Sunday in 1843, and for their honeymoon, they traveled through France and Switzerland together. When they got back... Anne Walker began moving her things into the Shibden Manor, and this was when some rumors began to arise in the area. And at the time, especially because they didn't have the language to know what was happening with these two women, they kind of reverted to these just awful pranks. So somebody put out a ad in the paper congratulating Captain Tom Lister of Shibden Hall to Miss Anne Walker, And the women also received mock congratulatory letters in the mail. Anne even wrote in her diary saying, probably meant to annoy, but if so, a failure. So the two were pretty happy. People tried to kind of ruin their their fun, and I'm sure it did affect them, but it seems like Anne was especially pretty uh, focused on the relationship and just really loved where she was in her Mm -hmm. life. Of course, they remodeled the home and they were having some money trouble. So they really did seem like a normal couple from a lot of the diary entries. They did fight. They weren't always, you know, peachy keen with each other. And they decided that they needed to get away for a while and have a vacation. So they decided to go traveling through Europe again. On their last stop, they went to Russia, where Anne described Moscow as being one of the most beautiful cities she had ever seen. But unfortunately, three weeks after being in Russia, Anne suddenly passed away, possibly from an insect bite. Anne Walker was now left stranded with her deceased wife, 4,500 miles from home, and it took her eight months to return to Shibden with Anne's (sighs) body. Jesus, like I know. old times were
2: so difficult. Like you could just drop dead of an insect bite out of
1: nowhere and it would take you eight months to get home. Yeah. Like crazy. Yeah. So when Anne Walker finally got back home, she had inherited Shibden. It was as part of Anne's will. So she continued to live there. But her family, however, thought that she was suffering from a mental illness from a mental illness, so they had a doctor, lawyer, and a police officer come to her house to retrieve her. When she was found, she was cowering behind a locked door filled with papers. She was then sent to the same asylum as Anne's first love, Eliza, until she too passed away. Wow, that's so tragic. That was the twist I told you about, because I was reading the article that I got all this to Max when he was cooking me dinner. And I'm like, oh my god, happily ever after, except that Anne passed away. Like that's the end of the story. And then I'm like, wait, what? That is so sad. Assault in the wound. Like this poor woman traveled eight months with her deceased wife's body, and her family so cruelly pulls her away from the home and the places she had with the love of her life and threw her in an asylum where she was, I'm sure, abused and treated horribly until she died. That's terrible. I don't want to even think about the conversion therapy I'm sure they were doing there. Terrible. But to end on a happy note, on the church where the two got unofficially married, the Holy Trinity Church, there is now a rainbow plaque describing Anne as the first modern lesbian. Oh, I love it. Isn't that cool? Yes, that's cool. That, what a great one. Isn't that one fun? I couldn't believe yeah. that I didn't know about her. And there was there was so much more. I really, I highly recommend going into the show notes and reading the article that I read on the BBC.uk. It was long, but it was really well written and really, really good. And I'm very excited to watch Gentleman Jack now.
2: I didn't know that Gentleman Jack was based on a real person. Yeah. So that's actually very exciting. That makes me want to go back and give it another shot and watch it again. Yeah.
1: I want to um, read the book that the teacher, Helena Whitbread, came out with because I'm curious as to whether or not it puts, like, more diary entries in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to know more about her upbringing because I think it would be fascinating to see her life with the other Anne when they're older. But, like, there's something about the boarding school years that are really fascinating mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, for sure. Um, that would be kind of cool to know. Yeah, more. yeah. It would. I would definitely be interested in reading that book.
2: Oh, yeah. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, I'm definitely going to check that out some more. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my feminist fave. This is another one who I feel like isn't entirely forgotten. Like I feel like we have some concept of her. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've definitely, like, seen her image. But I feel like it took a long time for it to become even remotely visible for us. uh, And it had a profound influence on our culture. So I am going to be talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp today. I know the name. (laughs) You would know the image. Like, if you
1: saw... Her picture, Rosetta Tharp. Is she? Yeah, you you're leaving me hanging with too many clues and not enough answers right now, Keegan. So we start. Get
2: (laughs) okay. So Sister Rosetta Tharp was born on March 20th, my birthday. Hi, hi, 1915, um, as Rosetta Newbin in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, to Katie Bell Newbin and Willis Atkins, and they were both cotton pickers. So she was born. Katie Bell, I know. And so she was born in this very, very modest kind of upbringing, um, very low-income family. And there's little known about her father except for that he was a singer. And Tharp's mother, Katie, was also a singer and a mandolin player. Of course. And she was in... Yes. Of she course was in, I know
1: who she is. Oh, okay, yes. sorry.
2: She was an evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. So her mom, um, Katie Bell... Mother Katie Bell was a female preacher and she was a huge influence on Rosetta's life. From a very young age, her mom encouraged her um, to. Her mom encouraged not only Rosetta, but the rest of the congregation as well to use music as a means to attract people
1: to the church. That's a really interesting, sorry to interrupt, but it's a really interesting dynamic that you just described because. I I picture the South in particular, and then if we're talking about evangelists as well, like it's a very patriarchal society for the most part. So having her mom, this Katie Bell, be such an influence not only for her, but also on an entire congregation. I mean, I, I could be totally speaking out of line. Maybe that was a much more common thing at the time that I'm aware of. But I feel like, especially in the 50s, having a woman be almost, like, ahead of the husband, in a way. Like, I feel like if you were a preacher, like, a female preacher, you would have – you would be seen as almost being more authoritative than your husband, in a way, right? Right. Well, this was even sooner than that. So, Rosetta
2: Tharp was born in 1915.
1: Oh, 15? I thought you said 50. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, 1915. Well, yeah. Especially, think- do, like, in that religious culture, I just find it interesting that, like, Katie would have such an influence – Right.
2: Well, I think that definitely within religious cultures, or at least like Western religious cultures, Christian cultures, there's definitely um, a lot of patriarchal stuff going on. However, within African-American culture, it's very matriarchal. And I think people take a lot more to women kind of running the show. Now, still, I think that female preachers are unusual um kind of like leading in an evangelical way i think is a bit unusual yeah but maybe it was easier to take because it was coming there was so much like evangelism in the form of music and maybe that was seen as something that was kind of more acceptable i don't yeah. know I'm, com- no, I'm
1: completely speculating yeah i mean what i am aware of with like the evangelical church is more so like the midwest evangelicals that i grew up with and people that i know who grew up evangelical are white as well so it's a different mm-hmm. experience i'm sure so yeah that image in my head though was just interesting especially you were saying there's not much known about the father and then hearing this much about the mom i feel like it's right not something you typically like in these older biographies as well here if you're going to hear about a parent you're going to hear about the father typically right well there's definitely a reason for that so we'll kind of
2: we'll get into that but rosetta She would do this thing where she would stand outside with her mandolin and her tambourine, and she would sing gospel songs as kind of a way of recruiting people into the church or trying to like get people to come in the door.
1: And so, she sneaky girl, that sneaky,
2: (laughs) and and it worked. And like she encouraged other people to do this as well. So. Um, Rosetta began singing and playing the guitar as little Rosetta Nubin at the age of four and was cited as a musical prodigy. So there's this
1: teeny tiny little four-year-old with a
2: guitar. So
1: cute. It had to have been like the size of a ukulele.
2: (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) That's so cute. My parents bought me a little like child-sized guitar when I was
1: like six or seven. I got one when I was a little bit older. That was the one that I learned on. But it wasn't, Mm -hmm. it still would have been way too big for a four-year- old my gosh. I'm sure it was quite the instrument on her. Mm -hmm. So about 1921,
2: at the age of six, Katie Bell left Willis to become a traveling evangelist. And Rosetta went with her. So that's why we really don't know anything about Willis. Because he kind of drops out of the story at this point. He doesn't really come back at all. Because Katie Bell, she's like, you know what? I've been called to be a preacher. I'm taking my daughter and we're getting
1: out of town. That sounds... (laughs) like so much fun like I wish more than anything that like as a kid my mom was like Maddie we're getting out of here we're going on a road trip we're gonna we're gonna sing and drive I'm like yes let's
2: do it I mean I low-key feel bad for Willis I don't know anything about him maybe he had it coming but I'm just like oh what a bummer let's assume he had it coming (laughs) um but she was billed, Rosetta was billed as a, quote, singing and guitar playing miracle. She accompanied her mother in performances that were part sermon and part gospel concert um, across the American South. So they at first were traveling all throughout the American South. But eventually, like many other African-Americans, they ended up making their way north at this time. So in the 1920s, there was this mass kind of exodus of African-Americans from the South making their way north, specifically in Chicago, which is where Rosetta and Katie Bell ended up winding up. And the dad um,
1: never came with.
2: Did she have any siblings? Not that I've read. So have the- read it- dad just like stayed just kicked it in Arkansas I guess like I don't know like there's nothing about him that I have seen so I don't know what happened to him yeah
1: okay
2: Uh -uh. and I don't know if she had other siblings no one talks about them I don't think she did okay Um, let's hope not or else what a sad life for them Katie Bell just took Rosetta and was like (laughs) you guys can stay here with
1: Willis you don't need to come I know parents like that
2: yeah I'm gonna assume that she didn't have siblings
1: okay let's Um,
2: do it But once they were in Chicago, Rosetta was introduced to all new kinds of musical sounds because she'd grown up in the church, specifically with gospel music. And here there were black Americans from all over the country who had congregated in Chicago. And so she was getting blues from Mississippi. She was getting jazz from New Orleans. Like she was getting all these different musical influences. Yeah. And um, Mother Bell and Rosetta joined the Roberts Temple for the Church of God in Christ. And six-year-old Rosetta quickly became this sensation. She started drawing audiences because she was so talented. She was placed on top of the piano so the crowds could see her. And she would be holding her guitar and playing her guitar and just kind of ch- charming the audiences with her talent and I her stage that. presence. Yeah,
1: Well, it's totally true today. Like when you see a little kid on YouTube with just like, adult like talent Mm -hmm. there is something i mean confidence yeah and that's like what makes you stop i mean that's why like i mean the ellen show was like known for that she would like find kids online with talent and bring them on and like Mm -hmm. it's it's amazing to general audiences to see young kids with that amount of talent totally yeah and
2: she described herself at the age of 10 as being a, quote, all-purpose musician. So she would play guitar for the crowds. And if the crowds, you know, the people got singing along, they got going, she would run over to the piano to accompany them singing. And then she would get up and dance. So she really knew how to, like, hold a crowd. She could do kind of everything at she, the age of 10.
1: Yeah, she needed one of those things that, like, you strap on that's got the drum mm-hmm. and the accordion and the, mm-hmm. and the cymbal and the, yeah, that's, she needed one of those machines. Exactly. <laughs>
2: exactly. Yeah. So she spent her teens traveling with her mother. And by the time she was 18, she was basically a celebrity within the church and revival circles. When Rosetta was 19, her mother arranged a marriage to a preacher within the church, the Reverend Tommy Tharp. And I'm not sure why this happened, um, except that I think the idea was for the two of them to be this kind of like church, church of power couple. Christ. Power couple, yeah, I was gonna say they, it sounds
1: like a business deal because if the mother I mean I it could have been also like you know the mom wanted security, but also it would probably ensure that the church would maybe stay in the family too, you know, yeah, I mean, I have to believe that her mother
2: wanted the best for her daughter and thought that she was doing
1: a good thing. I'm curious um, about her mom. I don't know. She yeah. sounds a little stage mom-ish to me. I'm a little curious about the true intent of her mom. So far, I, I'm not going to pick on her too much, but I'm getting little mm-hmm. hints of some stage mom action I here. mean, it, it feels like that a little bit. It does. Um
2: But so she marries this guy, Tommy Tharp, and for the next four years, they travel together and Rosetta would draw the crowds in and then Tommy would preach from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. But the marriage was not a happy marriage. Tommy was extremely controlling. He believed that wives were meant to be subservient to their husbands, and so he treated Rosetta like a workhorse. Friends Mm. who knew her at the time described him as a tyrant and that he used Rosetta as a meal ticket, which Uh. is kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. Like She was the one who was drawing the crowds in. You need her in order for you to be successful and I know a lot of men have a hard time with that when their wives are more popular or successful than they are yeah you know? especially yeah. in this time period
1: yeah I'm sure he was intimidated by her like style stow- star power and her talent especially if like I don't want to say you're only preaching because I know that that probably takes a lot of skill and talent as well but like if that's something you can't do to bring an audience in that way with your preaching I'm sure that was kind of a sore spot for him as well
2: absolutely yeah so after four years of marriage, Rosetta leaves Tommy and she heads to New York with her mother where she switches gears and she goes from performing in churches and for revivals to performing in New York City nightclubs. Mm-hmm. So her talent was quickly noticed and she was soon performing at the world famous Cotton Club. Um, she would she actually performed at Carnegie Hall at one point. Wow. And in in these spaces, she was performing for mostly white audiences. Mm-hmm. So when she made the switch from gospel music to mainstream, um, where many of the lyrics were considered to be somewhat racy for the time, she was harshly criticized by the church and her former fans, which was very hard for her. But she was also not willing to give up either gospel performance or nightclub. So she was like, I'm going to do both and you guys can just get over it. Of course. (laughs) Her popularity kind of skyrocketed during this time, and soon she was being offered deals by all the big bands of the day. And so she decided to strike up a partnership with band leader Lucky Millinder and a manager named Mogale. In October of 1938, she signed with Decca Records. And soon she had a hit song called Rock Me, which was a spiritual song. But the way she sang it displayed this really classic rock and roll sound. Yeah. So, you know, she would growl during the chorus. It was Mm. this very, like, soulful, kind of like hip swinging sound, right? Yeah. Which was a bit controversial. And her songs became more and more risque and most notably she had a scandalous record called tall skinny papa Mm. which definitely could not be mistaken for a gospel song (laughs) and while she really seemed to embrace this new role um you know if you watch videos of her performing which i highly recommend because they're incredible like you see some people and you're just like wow that person is a star and you can see it like it's even in videos that are old like this you can see it coming through the screen and that's how it is with her um but it is unclear how much agency she really had when making these records because even though she was rebellious she had told those close to her that she um when she went into business with lucky millinder she wouldn't sing these very secular songs. Yeah. She had no intention on it. So when asked by them later on why she did record songs like Tall Skinny Papa, she told them that even though he had given her his word, that he would not have her sing anything she didn't want to. Yeah. There was a clause in her contract that said that she had to sing anything that he wanted her to.
1: So. Mm. So kind of my- like, I, I'm going to give you my word, But then I'm also going to slide this little thing into your contract. I see. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So
2: in my personal opinion, I think that there was part of her that reveled in this rebellion. I also think that they set out to take advantage of her from the beginning. And she had signed this seven year contract. Right. Yeah. So throughout this time, her popularity began to soar. The church people got over their initial shock, and they welcomed Rosetta back in with open arms. And secular fans started to love her. And she essentially had created her own genre. It was blending jazz, blues, and gospel. And by the time she was 25, she was rated among the most popular musicians of the day. She was rubbing shoulders with the likes of Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway. And she was making money just hand over fist. So, throughout the 1940s, Rosetta continued to tour all over the world, and she often played for black soldiers fighting in World War II. And she played the electric guitar. Yeah. And when you see this woman in the 1940s, this black woman
1: in a dress playing the electric guitar, it is insane. I was... I just Googled some pictures just to keep the image in my head. And it is, it's like seeing your mother with a really cool electric guitar. Cause she's wearing like a, like just normal, nice, like a house dress. Dresses. Yeah. yeah. Like she's not wearing, you know, short skirts or anything that would normally be seen as like performative wear, I feel like. But she's got like, you know, in some pictures, just like bright red electric guitar.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's, and she's incredible. Like the way that she plays. It was so unique for the time. No one was playing guitar like this. Yeah, and I'm sure um, that there weren't a lot of women that either no, that were playing guitar like that. No, no. Um, such was her popularity that after World War II, when touring, Rosetta was one of the very first people to tour the country with her name on the side of a bus. And she kind of invented what we now think of as like a tour bus. Yeah. Um, unlike many other tour buses, quote unquote, of the time, the back area had been converted into beds, which oh. as we know now is kind of something that it's a standard tour buses have. Yeah. Um, but this was done in part because despite Rosetta's popularity, she and the rest of her black bandmates couldn't stay in many of the hotels along the tour route. So they slept on the bus. Oh, Wow. And during segregation, black and white acts performing together was pretty much unheard of. But nevertheless, Rosetta asked white gospel quartet, the Jordanaires, to tour with her. Yeah, And oftentimes there was little food on the bus, depending on where in the country they were. They couldn't always stop to pick up things. You know, there wasn't. Everything was segregated. So occasionally restaurant owners, knowing who Rosetta Tharp was, would allow the band members to pick up food at the back door of the restaurant. But they were never allowed to eat inside.
1: They always had to take their food back to the bus. That sounds so frustrating to be traveling and all you want is some food Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you can't. If they weren't so
2: lucky as to be able to pick up food um, at the back of the restaurant and were unable to get a hot meal, the Jordanaires, who were a white quartet, would go into the restaurant. They would eat and then they would order Sister Rosetta the same meal that they had and take uh, it back to her
1: very nice. on the bus.
2: Yeah. So by the time she was 30, Rosetta had been married and divorced twice. She had had numerous relationships with both men and women by Oh, this time.
1: really? Yes. Church going in- girl. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All right. And in
2: 1946, she saw a young singer named Marie Knight performing at a Mahalia Jackson concert in New York City and was quickly taken with her. So Aww. two weeks later, she showed up on Marie's doorstep and invited her to go on the road. And Marie agreed. And they were this dynamite pairing who recorded a smash hit version of a gospel song called Up Above My Head. And you can hear you can listen to that if you Google it. Oh, my gosh. Um, and something made them super unique, and that was that they didn't need male bandmates to back them up. Marie played the piano as well as the drums, and Rosetta played the guitar and the piano, so they had everything pretty much covered. They I didn't love it. need any other bandmates, so they toured alone, which was unheard of and also risky, but Rosetta wanted it that way because the two women had quickly become lovers, and yeah. so they valued their privacy. Of course, it could have been career ending for either one of them had that news gotten out beyond their circles totally in 1950 so four years later while the couple was performing were performing in california they got word that marie's mother and two small children were killed in a fire and so marie understandably was traumatized by this loss and so at this point she left the tour and presumably their relationship behind oh like she and you know you understand that yeah but less than a year later, after breaking up with Marie, a couple of Decca promoters from Decca Records had an idea for a publicity stunt. They wanted to stage a wedding for Rosetta in Washington's Griffith Stadium, which is a baseball stadium. They planned to sell tickets to her fans and have her perform after the ceremony to have a full
1: concert. Who um, is she marrying?
2: Well, (laughs) the only problem was she didn't have a groom. Um, So she was like, yes, I will do this. Sounds great, but I don't have anyone to marry. So weeks before the wedding um, was due to take place, she met a man named Russell Morrison. And he was a minor player in the music industry. Yeah. And he agreed to not only be Rosetta's third husband, but was also like, I want to be your manager. (laughs) And she was like, "Okay, all right. So, 25,000 people came to this wedding ceremony, and so loved was Rosetta that not only did people pay admission to attend the wedding, but audience members also showered her with wedding gifts. One guest even bought her a television set. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yes. So, while many of her friends showed up for the wedding, they were also
1: skeptical, feeling that Russell was just out to use Rosetta. Well, yeah, which... the thing about asking to be her manager, I'm mm-hmm. like, you just want your 10%. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sketchy.
2: And it, and it did turn out to be true. Russell was a terrible manager. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was clear that he was living off of Rosetta's talent and also sleeping around with other people left and right. Yeah. But despite this, Rosetta actually stayed married to Russell for the next 22
1: years. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Did he stay her manager the whole time? I
2: don't know. I hope not. Actually,
1: I think he did. Ooh. Yeah.
2: So by the 50s, white people started doing this thing that we've now come to, to it's all too common nowadays, yeah. which is they see something that black people are doing and they're like, that would be cool. Yeah. So I bet we Memphis, could do that too. Mm hmm. <laughs> Or like it'll make me edgy or interesting if we do this thing that we're not quote unquote supposed to do. So in Memphis, it became cool for white teens to frequent local black churches and listen to gospel music. And white musicians like Johnny Cash, Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley took the energy from these black churches and adapted them for white audiences. Yeah.
1: Johnny Cash, I know. I don't know. A lot about Elvis's story, but I do know that Johnny Cash started as like a gospel singer as well. And that was like his background. So I can totally understand where he would be kind of like appropriating that culture well, for his music.
2: Yeah, I mean, and the the line between gospel music and rock and roll music was very thin at this time. Yeah. So even though... Um, Rosetta Tharp was a quote unquote gospel musician. She was really a rock and roll musician, like the riffs that she played on the guitar, the style of music, her style of singing, um the movement, all of the dancing it was taken out of church culture, but it is it's it was it became rock and roll culture yeah like that's it went directly into that uh-huh and um, her unique style of picking the guitar was especially attractive to a young Elvis Presley, who emulated her style almost completely. Yeah, like you can kind of watch videos of them crazy um, and see that like he really took a lot of inspiration from Sister Ros- Rosetta Tharp. So by the nineteen or by the late nineteen fifties, rock and roll was kind of a solidified jo- genre at this point, and it had young white male people at the center and these were all things that Rosetta at this point was not. She was late middle-aged black woman. And so her career began to kind of dry up and she moved into this small row house in Philadelphia with Russell and her mother. Mm-hmm. But in 1957, a popular English jazz trombonist named Chris Barber called Rosetta and asked her to go on tour with his band for a month throughout England and so she agreed and she toured England and she completely stole the show awesome. British audiences had only ever been exposed to blues and gospel through because those are e- distinctly American things yeah. blues and gospel music and she'd only ever been exposed through white people doing imitations of blues and gospel uh-huh. and Rosetta was the, the real, real deal. deal yeah and people lost their shit so, Sister Rosetta had a whole second act in Europe in her 40s. Her popularity skyrocketed over there um, throughout the 1960s. Bob Dylan actually loved her and talked about her on the radio. He said, "quote She was a big, good-looking woman and divine, not to mention sublime and splendid. She was a powerful force of nature, a guitar-playing, singing evangelist." And he, I love credits- Bob
1: so much. I <laughs> Me love too. That man.
2: Me too. And he credits her with influencing young English musicians to pick up a guitar and take up rock and roll. Um, And she really did have this incredible presence. Yeah. I um, watched her perform at age 49. You can find the entire video. She performed for a bunch of college kids in Manchester Uh at the age of 49. And it's mesmerizing, actually. Like, it's so incredible to watch her perform. She just has this, this wonderful quality. In 1968, Rosetta's mother, Katie Bell, passed away, and the loss took a really heavy toll on Rosetta, regardless of whether or not she was this kind of, like, looming stage mom figure, which she may have been. We don't know. She she may have been, but she was kind of the only constant in rosetta's life she was there through everything um and so the loss hit rosetta really really hard and she began to suffer from depression and it's around this time that she was diagnosed with diabetes her friends noticed a black spot on rosetta's foot um around this time and they begged her to go to the doctor but she didn't listen and in 1970 she suffered a stroke, and when she was in the hospital, they noticed that her foot had completely turned black, and so they had to amputate it. They amputated her foot at that time.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. Did she survive, though? She
2: did. She okay, did. good. But on October 9th, 1973, on the eve of a scheduled recording session, so this is about three years later, she died in Philadelphia as a result of another stroke. She had another stroke, and this time succumbed to that. So Aww. for the funeral, Marie Knight, who was Rosetta's old partner yeah. and bandmate, she actually made her up for the funeral. So she took over doing the hair and makeup duties oh. for her body and made sure that she looked put together yeah. for for her funeral, which I thought was just like after all those years just the most touching thing <laughs> that, you know, absolutely. It's beautiful. It is. She was buried at Northwood Cemetery in Philadelphia. In 2007, she was inducted posthumously into the Blues Hall of Fame. In 2008, the governor of Pennsylvania declared that January 11th would henceforth be known as Sister Rosetta Tharp Day. Awesome. And she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as an early influence in 2018.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, that is so cool. I as soon as you said the name, and as you were telling the story, I was remembering more and more about who you were talking to. But I'm very excited now to to talk to Max about it. (laughs) Because I'm sure he's gonna have a lot to I'm sure he knows a lot about her. I got a lot
2: of my information. There was an article on Afropunk and a Rolling Stone article, but then I got most of my information um, from a BBC documentary called Sister Rosetta Tharp, The Godmother of Rock and Roll. Love it. And um, it's great. I'll send you the link if you and Max want to watch it or we want to put it in the show notes. Totally, um, Because it is so good and the BBC I think wanted to put on this documentary because she had such a profound influence in the UK. Yeah. (laughs) You know, she did everything she did in the United States and then went to Europe and blew their minds. Yeah, Yeah.
1: it's crazy because that really, that was kind of a more normal trajectory I feel like for careers back then. I feel like people once they got to be like in their middle ages they're like, well I'll see if I can do it in Europe and like it didn't always happen so the fact that she had this like crazy second career in her life. Mm-hmm. Especially I feel like you know we hear a lot of middle-aged women discussing, you know, their careers kind of stopping around that time, whether you be in the entertainment industry or probably any other by the time a woman re- reaches a certain age, she's not as desirable to be hired anymore. So the fact that she was able to revamp her career as a middle-aged woman and be so beloved is kind of an amazing feat for her, I think. Well, I think she was able to
2: do that because when you watch this documentary, you know, people are talking, these men are talking about how, like, you don't understand, like, if you were a man trying to make it in music in the 1950s, you knew who Sister Rosetta Tharp was. Because, you know, she was the person for rock and roll influence. And so I think it's because of that, that she was able to have that second wave is because by the time she was in her forties, she had influenced this whole generation underneath her, That's and a that good person point. called her up and was like, "Hey, I've idolized you for all this time. Would you go on tour with us?" Totally one you know? well, so- also
1: kind of like bringing in that teenage group as well, like you said, where they're hearing the music that they love, but they're hearing like the real thing, the way it originated. Mm-hmm. And there is something crazy. Like, you know, if you've only heard the cover of a song and you love the cover of this song and you think it's great, and you have no idea there's another version out there. And then you hear the original and you're just like, whoa, you know, I can mm-hmm. assume that it would mm-hmm. be something very similar. Totally, totally. (sighs) Well, I am going to go eat some amazing homemade mac and cheese. And Max made his own Caesar dressing tonight as well. Yummy.
2: Wow. Do you know that
1: there's anchovies in it? Because I did not know that. I did. I know. I try not to think about it. I really do. That's my game right now. So I am very excited to go eat that dinner and talk about Rosetta Tharp with him.
2: Yes, Yes. do. And I'll send you the link to the BBC doc.
1: Do it. We love watching music documentaries, especially in the mornings when we have off. So we will check that out. Oh, all right, everybody. I hope that you really enjoyed our talks about Miss Anne and Rosetta. If there are any forgotten feminists that you would like for us to talk about that we have not covered yet, go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminists at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. Go ahead and rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. We have a Twitter that we sometimes use at Yamp Podcast Y A N F Podcast. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it so, so very much. And if you don't already, go ahead and listen to us on Radio Public. It is a free way for you to listen, and it helps us out just a little bit. All right, that's all we got for you today. With all of that being said, we encourage you to rage on. To rage on. Bye-bye.